1 Corinthians chapter 1 is where we are. It's all right. Get your drink. You're fine. Don't worry, Elizabeth. You're fine. She's looking at me very guilty like, oh. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We started this uh, great letter last week looking at the first nine verses as way of an introduction. Today we're going to finish the first chapter starting in verse 10. I'm going to read just verse 18, and then I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll get into it together. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And Father, we, we come to you right now, and we just want to acknowledge our weakness. Lord, we don't have what it takes to save ourselves. We don't even have what it takes to understand your gospel apart from the work of your Holy Spirit. But we're so thankful that you desire to make yourself known to us. That when we open your word, we can know that you want to speak. That you want to make yourself known to us. Thank you, Lord, that you have come down to our weak level, that we might know your power. And we pray, Lord, that you would use this time in your word to help us glory in you, to boast in you how good you are, how faithful you are, how best your plans are. Lord, just meet us here today, we pray. And we trust your Holy Spirit to speak to us as we need it. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Everyone who agrees says? Amen. Amen. I want you to to do something that might be very difficult, even more difficult than the things I was trying to get you to imagine last week. I want you to imagine you've never heard of the game of football. I know there's a few of you who are thinking, I don't mean American football. Yeah, I was going to say there's a few of you who are going to go, praise God. But no, in all seriousness, I want you to imagine you've never heard of the game of football, and then you, you, you hear noise, and so you, you follow that noise, and that noise is at a stadium, and as you see the stadium, you see Carroll Road, you go in there, and you see these, these men running around in short trousers, kicking a ball back and forth. And you're amazed at how coordinated they are. You're amazed about like what you sense might be strategy. You're amazed at the skill to kick a ball from... 30 yards away into a net as another man tries to dodge at it. And you think, wow, this is a beautiful game. And you join in in the atmosphere of the game and you start cheering, you start singing songs, you're not even sure what they mean, and you start really getting involved in this. You're thinking, this is a beautiful game. And then something happens. Someone says to you, well, who do you support? And you're like, what do you mean? I'm just enjoying the beautiful game. Yeah, but, but who do you support? Norwich or Ipswich? Who do you support? And all of a sudden, this beautiful game isn't so beautiful because it comes, becomes very tribal. It becomes a thing where instead of just enjoying the game, you're worried about who you're associated with. 
And you start finding yourself looking around and you look at all the yellow jerseys and those, seems, those guys seem kind of cool. So, okay, I'll say I support Norwich. But then you see the other, I don't even know what color Ipswich is, but you see Ipswich and they're kind of, and you go, well, maybe I'll support them. And then, oh, wait a second, Norwich is winning, of course. And so you think, I'll support Norwich. And you kind of, and, and you just, you're, you, you stop enjoying the beauty of the game and you start thinking this is about how I can be exalted by whom associated with. This is exactly what happened in Corinth. What happened in Corinth wasn't about football. It was about faith. It wasn't about Ipswich or Norwich. It was about Jesus. It was about that this Jesus, this, this man from Galilee who claimed to be God's only son, who, who lived a life that was exemplary and perfect, who died a death he didn't deserve, and who rose again three days later, this Jesus had communicated through Paul, by his spirit, through Paul, about the saving grace that he had to offer. And people in Corinth, this carnal city, this city that's, as we said last week, it's London and Las Vegas put together. This place where you'd think, no way God would show his grace and his mercy and his love there. This city began to be changed. These people began to get changed, but then something happened. They moved away from the beauty of the gospel and they got into self-exalting tribalism. And so Paul's going to have to deal with that. In fact, really, Paul's going to deal with this tribalism, this division over the next four chapters, the rest of what we got in chapter one, into chapter two, chapter three, and chapter four. He's going to deal with this division because division is such a dangerous thing. And so when we pick it up in verse 10 of chapter 1, this is what Paul's doing. He's confronting their division. And he starts off by saying, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. And so Paul, in wanting to address the division in Corinth, he starts by saying, listen, I'm coming to you in the name of Jesus. And if you guys have been around the Bible for a while, you know, he doesn't just mean the name J-E-S-U-S. -S, he means the authority of Jesus. He's saying, this is not my opinion. This is about Christ's authority. And Jesus, who is Lord, he says, listen, I want no division, no tribalism among my people. I don't want this here. And, and this is the thing, the reason why he's going to actually confront this is because to be divided, to be tribal, and to name Christ is actually to deny Christ's authority. And so Paul's going to deal with this. And when he says no division or be of the same mind or be of the same judgment, this is not just some kind of superficial agreement. Like, okay, we can sign the, all, all sign the same doctrinal statement. Or, or, or we'll, we'll promise to just kind of be nice to each other. This is more than that. This is about a practical and committed mindset to demonstrate the goodness of Jesus Christ and how we treat each other. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. But he says this then in verse 11. He, he, he writes to them saying, here's what he's heard. He says, for it's been reported to me by Chloe's, by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, and what I mean is that each of you say, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or huh, I'm better than you all, I follow Christ. Now, the, the, the thing here is that we need to recognize that the personalities named here, Paul, of course, who's writing this letter, and 
Apollos, if you read in Acts 18, Apollos was one who came after Paul and preached. He was a really eloquent guy, and I'm sure when we get to chapter 3, we'll talk more about that. Uh, and then Cephas is another name for Peter, you know, the apostle Peter, and we have indication from chapter 9 that Peter and his wife actually visited Corinth and did some ministry there. And these men were not divided between each other. The context of 1 Corinthians will bid this out. There wasn't a problem between these men. The problem was people wanting to identify with these men because in identifying with these men, they thought, oh, I'm identified with someone who's strong or talented or has influence. In fact, it's interesting when, when he says I, it's, it's, it's more emphatic than we see in the English in the original language because it's not just like I follow Paul, it's I follow Paul. And, and the idea here is that, that when you get to the end, when someone says, I follow Christ, it's as if they're saying, well, yeah, well, I don't follow any of these guys. I follow Christ. You don't, but I do. And there's all this division. In fact, when it talks about quarreling, it's the idea that there's a strife or a tension. And this is what happens when we exalt personalities. When we make personalities more than they're meant to be, And Paul, Paul's grieved by this, and this is why he says in verse 13, he asks three rhetorical questions. That's questions where the answer is obviously no. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The answer to all those, of course, is no. In fact, then Paul goes on to remind them of what happened when he first came to Corinth and preached the gospel. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And then verse 16, you kind of get a, it's in parentheses in a lot of versions like, like an ESV. And it's, you almost think like Stephanus is there going, but also us, Paul. Because he says this, oh, I did also baptize the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't even know who I, if I, whether I baptized anyone else. And now what Paul's doing here is he's not belittling baptism. We'll talk more about that in a second. But what Paul's saying here is he's saying, listen, when you were baptized, you weren't baptized in the name of Paul or Cephas or Apollos. You're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's how you were baptized. Because your baptism was not about identifying with the person or even the church that baptized you. Your baptism is about you identifying with Jesus Christ. Baptism is about you acknowledging, I believe that when Christ died, I died with him. And I believe that because Christ was resurrected, I'll be resurrected with him. That's what baptism is about. And so what Paul's saying here is he's saying, listen, you didn't start off this way, and I'm so glad I didn't baptize a bunch of you so none of you could say, oh, I've been baptized in Paul's name. So none of you would say, I'm going to identify with him. But Paul says, you didn't start off in this place of division. In fact, here's the truth, guys. None of us who are Jesus followers, absolutely none of us start off being divided with other Jesus followers. Sometimes we're not divided because we just don't know any better. Praise God for ignorance. And sometimes we're not divided because we just don't care. We know that Jesus saved us, and we love meeting other people whom Jesus has saved. In fact, this is what Paul would write to the Ephesians, a very simple statement. He would say, maintain the unity of the Spirit. Not create the unity, not work up the unity, not structure some sort of multi-church gathering for unity, but maintain something that the Holy Spirit has wrought by birthing you into God's family. See, here's the reality, right? 
Division is not something that we kind of, it doesn't start with something we do. It doesn't start with us trying to divide. Actually, division, listen, starts by something we neglect. We neglect doing what Christ has called us to do together. Listen again, this is what Paul writes to the Philippian church. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. It's a bit more of a paraphrase, but it's, it's really clear with this. Listen. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes, Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? These are rhetorical questions to which the answer is yes. Okay, Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving each other, working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. But be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't look only for your, only for your own interests, but take an interest in others only. See, division comes when we don't seek to maintain this unity, this practical commitment to demonstrate Christ to each other. This is when division comes, and Paul says, i got to confront this. It's too serious. If you came to church today and you were thinking, man, I hope it's so-and-so preaching, or I hope it's this, this worship team this week, oh, man, I really hope the children's ministry supervisor is so-and-so. If you came here thinking, I need to be connected to this personality, or when you, it's the break time, you're thinking, who looks cool that I can talk to? Now, we laugh, but we kind of do this. And actually how we do this is not so much of who looks cool, but avoid those who don't maybe look as cool as we think we are. Can I just say, none of you are cool at all. <laughs> but when we do that, listen, we need to recognize we might be stepping towards division. That, that when we're not pursuing the unity that's been given to us in Jesus by his Holy Spirit, we might be stepping towards division. Paul wants to confront that. But I love this because what Paul does is, again, as we saw, sort of saw hinted in the first nine verses of this chapter, when Paul wants to confront, or when he wants to deal with issues, what does he do? He always brings people back to the gospel. Here's what we see happens. After he confronts their division, Paul recenters them on the gospel. Look at verse 17. For Christ, Paul writes, did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. Now, when Paul recenters him on the gospel, we need to recognize the gospel is not the sacrament of baptism. I'm calling it sacrament, which is kind of a fancy word to say, uh, sort of a holy act that has to happen. I call it that because it is a holy act. There's two sacraments that Jesus left for his people. One is baptism, the other is communion. Communion is what we do uh, on the fourth Sunday together as a church family and also adoration service as a church family. But the other sacrament, baptism, is, is something that, that Jesus commands. And it isn't that Jesus commands. In fact, I would, I'd say this. If you do believe in Jesus, but you have refused baptism so far. You might go, oh, I'm not refused, I just haven't got around to it. Well, no, you, you haven't made an effort. If you believe in Jesus and you haven't done it, you are a disobedient Jesus follower. You need to recognize that. But if you're someone who goes, oh, I know I'm a Christian because I was baptized, you might be deceiving yourself because baptism isn't the gospel. And what Paul's saying here is, listen, he's saying, listen, 
I, the gospel that I want to recenter you on is not baptism. Baptism is just a public evidence of a personal faith. The good news, the gospel is not believe, but the gospel is Jesus has given us reason to believe. That's the good news. The command is believe the gospel. But the gospel itself is Jesus has come to give us reason to believe that God is good and he's made a way for people to be right with him. But also listen, in Paul recentering them on the gospel, he's not gonna recenter them on the influence of intelligent or spiritual people. Look what he says in verse 18 to 20. Follow me with this. We'll read verse 18 first. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. So Paul is clear there's two kinds of people. He wants the Corinthians to understand there's two kinds of people in your midst. There's two kinds of people in this world. Those who are in the process of perishing and those who are in the process of being saved, that is delivered or set apart or prepared for an eternity with God. Two kinds of people. Every single one of us in this room is one of these two kinds of people. Here's how this works according to scripture, okay? It works this way. Everyone, every single one of us, before we know Christ, is in the process of perishing. We're dying. Not just physically, but spiritually. We're in a, a dead place. But when we come to Christ, we get new life. We're born again, Jesus says. And we begin this process of being saved. We're set apart. We're given this position, this, uh, this, this place in God's family. We're adopted into his family. But we begin this process of being saved. Everyone's in one of these two places. And Paul says here that the word of the cross, that the, 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 this gospel, this message about a crucified Savior is nuts to people who, well, they're in the process of perishing. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But here's what I want you to recognize, right? When Paul says also about eloquent wisdom here, he say, he's not saying it's wrong to speak well. If you read like Acts chapter 17 and you see how Paul communicates with those, uh, those philosophers of Mars Hill, you're going, dang, that was, that was clever. That was good, that was good communication. The issue is Paul saying, you can't trust that. In fact, Paul purposely didn't try to sound smooth or, or intelligent when he went to Corinth. And he didn't do that because he wanted to make sure they knew this is not about me. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. See, see eloquent wisdom, communicating well, that could get people's attention. But it's only the cross of Jesus. It's only Jesus Christ and crucified who can save people's souls. And if you don't get anything else today, get this. You don't need to hear me speak. You need to hear God speak. You need to hear the Spirit of God say to you today, you need to trust in Jesus and you can trust in Jesus. That's what you need to hear. But then he says in verse 19, he's, he's here, he's, he's quoting actually Isaiah 29, and we'll come back to Isaiah 29 in a second. But he says, for it is written, Paul writes in, in verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the, of the discerning, I will thwart. And then he asks again some more sort of rhetorical questions in verse 20. He says, where's the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now when Paul says this, what he's talking about, especially in quoting Isaiah chapter 29, he's pointing out the fact that it's always been God's plan to expose the foolish 
self-sufficiency of humanity. I mean, guys, this is not a modern thing where we think either as individuals or collectively, we will sort out all of our own problems. How's that going so far? And so God's goal was always to do something radical that would both humble people and save them. In fact, listen to how Isaiah 29, uh, 13 and 14 says. So, so he quoted Isaiah 29, 14. But let me read to you 13 and 14 now. Listen, it says, And the Lord said through Isaiah, Because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, I will behold, uh, behold, I will again do wonderful things. Uh, Old King James has terrible things. With this, with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. In other words, God says, because these people keep saying, oh God, we want to worship you, and we've got you all figured out. God says, I'm going to do something that's going to just show you that you don't. Now remember, what's going on in Corinth? There's division because people are wanting to associate with someone that will help them be exalted. And Paul's trying to say, no, no, that's not the gospel. That's not what's going to recenter your life. Here's what's going to recenter your life. The wisdom of a crucified Savior. Look at verse 21. In verse 21, Paul says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what he, we, we preach, that's the, the gospel, to save those who believe. Drop down to verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's a cool thing, but what does it mean? <laughs> Great phrase, what does it mean? It means this, basically. It means that, that where human wisdom has failed, failed to, to understand the problem of evil, we failed. Every philosophy in the world, every bit of kind of education that we're involved in, every pursuit of man is about us trying to solve the problem of evil, the twin evils of sin and suffering. Suffering what we experience when evil's been done to us, sin, the evil that we do to others. Everyone's trying to resolve this. All religion is trying to resolve this. All the efforts of human uh, thinking and, and religion and, and, and education and philosophy is about us trying to resolve those two evils, and they failed. And where human wisdom has failed, God's, as he calls it, foolishness succeeds. How does that work? Go back up to verse 22. Paul here is now talking about, he's going to contrast what he preached with what people wanted to hear. Follow me with this, okay? Paul says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Amen. Now, again, this stuff, we read this and we go, yeah, okay, I think I know what that means. I think it makes sense. But what does it actually mean? I, I, I want to I put a, a little chart on the screen to kind of help us follow 
the logic that Paul's bringing, okay? Let's deal with each of these things. The Jews demand signs. Now, if you read the gospel accounts, you'll see this. The Jewish leaders are always going to Jesus. Jesus does miracles. He draws a crowd. He preaches, he preaches the kingdom of God to them. He heals people. They come in. We're not too sure about you. They say, show us a sign. He just did a sign. <laughs> they want more and more commands. They want more and more, I'm sorry, signs. They say, we want you to prove that you have God's power. You prove God's power. Prove it. And so when Jesus does the signs, or when he says to them, look, I'm not going to do any more signs to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. In other words, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the, of the well and then was barfed out onto the land, he'll be three days and three nights in the grave and then come back resurrected. But even though they demand a sign, when he's crucified, when Jesus is crucified, they're, they're, it's a stumbling block. Literally, it's a scandal to them. They say the cross is a scandal. God's too strong to be crucified. We told you, show us a sign. Ha! You're proving us to right now by being crucified that you can't be God. In fact, you remember when he's on the cross, what did the Jewish leader say? You saved others, why don't you save yourself? You guys remember that? So what do they do? They reject Christ, and then when Christ is resurrected, they deny it actually happened. No, 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 that couldn't have happened. The disciples must have stole his body. So that's the Jews. What about the Greeks? The Greeks prided themselves in their sort of intellectual accomplishments. And to be fair to the Greeks, uh, compared to the rest of the modern world, the Greeks and then the Romans, these guys were so much more civilized. A lot of things that we see as measures of civility were things that we inherited from the Greeks and the Romans. So there's, there's some truth in this. But they saw themselves as so wise. They, so when they hear the gospel... When, Jew, or sorry, when Greek thinkers or Roman thinkers, when they hear Jesus preach, they're going, yeah, okay, but this doesn't necessarily make sense. We need you to prove that your God is actually reasonable, that he is intelligent the way we think he should be intelligent. In other words, that he thinks like us, that he thinks just like us. And so when they hear of this God become man being crucified, they go, no, 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 that's, that's foolishness. The cross is foolishness. God's way too smart to get himself crucified. And so what do they do? They reject Christ and they ignore the resurrection. Nah, you couldn't have a God that's that foolish. There's a third view. And the third view is, is, is based on these that Paul says are the called, both Jews and Greeks. That is, they're the ones that have heard the call of the gospel Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. They've heard the call of the gospel. They've responded. They're the called of God. And in a sense, when they hear the gospel, repent and believe in Jesus, the thing that the Spirit pushes into their hearts, the thing that the Holy Spirit begins to grip in their hearts, could it be true, they think? Could God really love us? Could the one that's made this world really have a plan to overcome all the evil in this world? Could there be a God of love when the world is so messed up? Could this be true? Is there proof of this? And so when they hear the cross, when they hear Jesus preached and Jesus crucified preached, they go, this makes sense. God says, I see the twin evils in the world, sin and suffering, and I take all your suffering onto myself. I experience every kind of suffering that you experience as the God-man. 
And then I take all your sin upon me, all the judgment of your sin upon me on the cross. I acknowledge the cause of evil and I have the power to deal with it. And those that are called hear this truth and they go, no, 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 the cross is power. The cross is God's wisdom to, to both expose the, the, what the problem of sin and, and to overcome the problem of sin. And God saves us through it. And so what they do, they trust Christ and they experience resurrection. Both right now, by the power of the Spirit, they have a new life where they can walk and change. But also one day when Christ resurrects us all, they'll be resurrected into eternal, eternal life. So, so here's the thing that you need to recognize. What Paul's doing in recentering them on the gospel, he's, saying, he's, he's basically saying this. Listen, in Corinth and all the human race, there's three views about the cross. There's three views, three views about the crucified Christ, but there's only two choices. You reject him or you trust him. And so what Paul's wanting these Corinthians to get is he's wanting them to say, listen, you started off so well. You heard the gospel. You received baptism. You forsook your gods, false gods, little g, the gods of Greek and Rome. You recognized that the power of God and the wisdom of God was in what seems foolish to the world, which is a crucified and resurrected Savior. You did this, and now you're divided. You need to go back to what unified you in the first place. You need to go back to the unity of the Spirit, which is God birthing you into God's family through God's gospel. That's why he's doing this. Paul would say in Romans chapter five, listen, he would write this, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know why we divide? Those of us who are already Jesus followers, do you know why we divide? Because we forget how amazing and profound this gospel truth is. That this is what unifies us. Our worship styles don't unify us. Our church backgrounds don't unify us. Our socioeconomic standing does not unify us. The color of our skin does not unify us. What unifies us is this glorious gospel of a crucified Savior, of a God who proved that he loved us, that even when we were ungodly, even though when we were weak, even though when we were sinners in rebellion against God, God dies for us through his son, Jesus. See, here's the thing that, that Paul wants them to understand as they're bucking for position, as looking to have them, themselves exalted by affiliating with those who they think have influence. Paul's saying, no, don't you recognize that when you have that false sense of strength, I'm of Paul, man, Paul's a theologian. I'm of Paul. So have you heard that dude speak? No, I'm of Peter. He's the guy that Jesus chose to kind of lead the church. Well, I'm of Christ. I don't need any of those guys. That Paul's going, don't you, you're missing it. All these are you having a false sense of security in faith in a person. But here's the reality. You only understand strength when you recognize your complete and utter weakness. None of us have anything. You know what you and I bring to the table of our salvation? Nada. Zilch. 
nothing, goose egg, zero. All we do is by faith say, I'll take it, Lord. I'll take it. Can you see how, when we recentered on that, how that would lead to us learning how not to be divided? So Paul recenters them on the gospel. And again, we'll talk, I think, more about Christ crucified next week in uh, chapter two and how we recognize and grow in that. But Paul goes from recentering them on the gospel and he then now reminds them of their identity. If you look at verse 26, what do we read? In verse 26, Paul says, for consider your calling, brothers. That is, consider the state you're in when God called you to believe in Jesus. He says, not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So when Paul's reminding them of their identity, he's saying, listen, remember your identity is not based on your status or your ability. In fact, to put it bluntly, here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, according to this world, according to the culture that you want to exalt, this culture in Corinth that you think is so wonderful, according to this world, you're not clever, you're not strong, you're not popular, you're not wanted, you're not even worth mentioning. It's not very flattering, is it? It's not flattering, but listen, guys, it's so liberating. Because when we recognize that, listen, our identity isn't based on us being strong or wise or educated, that our identity is not even based on us being loving or good, that our identity is based solely in what Christ has done for us, we're free. We're finally free to be who God wants us to be. Not based on their status or ability, but based on God's gracious choice. Notice he said three times in verses 27 to 8, God chose. The, the, the point here is, is not so much about the doctrine of election, though that's a true doctrine. The point here is about the fact that God didn't initiate a relationship with any of these Corinthians because of anything good about them. God initiated this relationship with all these Corinthians because of the good that he is. Yeah. All right, think about this for a second, okay? If you're going to, whoa, if you're going to say, okay, I, I want to I gather a, a group of people that will be sort of religiously committed and do good works for me, you know, I, I'm going to see if I can gather them around, uh, around me. So I'm going to go to, uh, let's see, let's see, I'll go to that church or I'll go to that where the, maybe the nuns are or I'll go where maybe the monks hang out and I'll go to these people that seem to be already kind of spiritually disciplined and I'll say, hey, come on, I, I want you to now come follow me. You don't go to Las Vegas. You don't go to the place where people are, or, or, or to the New York Stock Exchange or to the London City. You don't go to the place where people are most broken, most selfish, most self-assured and self-confident. Self, uh, uh, you go to the place where, well, yeah, you don't pick those people. But that's exactly who God picked. He picked them. That's why he picked us. I don't know how long, I'm, you know, the older I get, the more I realize I repeat stories that I didn't realize I repeat. So forgive me if I told a story recently, but I'm going to tell a story that I've told before. Come on. Here we go. <laughs> when I uh, 
when you graduate high school in the United States of America, it's a big deal. And so when you, you, you about 10 years on, you go to your first class reunion. So I went to my class reunion after 10 years. And uh, make a really long story short, I see a bunch of Christians standing over there. I'm a, I'm a Christian. I was not a Christian in, in high school at all. So I'm a little bit nervous. I go over to where all these Christians are, and there's one guy standing there that hadn't been a Christian. And so these guys are all looking at me, smiling. Hey, John, we heard the good news. We heard you became a Christian. It's amazing. And I look at this guy, Tony. I'm all, Tony, did you also become a Christian? He goes, yeah. And he told me this story. He said, I was at a church, and they started talking about this guy, John Brown, who God's radically changed. And he goes, and I know this guy, John Brown. And I think to myself, if God can save John Brown, God can save anybody. True story. And, and the thing is, is that I, I think about this. God didn't save me because he, he's like, oh, that, that guy's got talent, man. Or, or that guy, you know, that guy, he's, he's just a victim. He's just a poor victim. That's why I'm going to save him. No, God looked at him and goes, he's a right idiot. If I save him, I'll get all the glory. Me too. Come on. Now, uh, here's what's amazing. God does this, and Paul's trying to remind them. This is what God did with you guys People in Corinth, listen, in verse 30, what, what does he say? The first part of verse 30, he says, um, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. The New Living Translation says this, I think, better. It says, God has united you with Christ. Boom. Because this is the great thing. God doesn't just do something for us, kind of separate, because of Christ. He does, but he does more than that. What God does is when we put our faith in Jesus, he unites us with Jesus. We actually become one with him. So that all the things that God says about Jesus, now God says about us. All the benefits that God the Son, Jesus, has enjoyed with God the Father, uh, this is what we now begin to learn and benefit. This is an amazing thing to think about. We're united with Christ. And it's because we're united with Christ that we're called to begin to live like Jesus. Now, now here's what's really cool about this. The truth is, is that God gives us all things in Christ. This is what we read, uh, this is what we read in, uh, in verse 30. We've been united with Christ, listen, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Righteousness means that, that, that God renders us innocent in Christ. Sanctification in this context it has to do with the positional, not the practical. We'll talk more about that later on. But sanctification, this process is, is, is that, that God has called us holy in Christ. Sanctification means to be set apart as holy. Redemption. Redemption means to be bought out of slavery. Our freedom is in Christ. All that we need is in Christ. That's all I'm going to say about that because this will be more in chapter 3. But the point here is, is that what, what Paul wants them to see is, listen... You need to know who your identity is. Your identity is not with Paul or Apollos or Peter. Your identity is in Christ. And that's not because you were so grand that God chose you. It's because God just chose you. It's because God loves you. And he responded to that love. And what does this lead to? Verse 29 says, So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Do you know why God saves knuckleheads like me and you? Do you know why God chases down rebels like me and you? Do you know why God forgives sinners like me and you? 
so that we would recognize how good he is and we'd boast about him. You see, when you recognize how free God's grace has been that he gave to you, you'll begin to realize, I don't need to be connected to other people in the sense that I don't need to be identified with anybody but Jesus. And then when you want to be identified with, uh, with, with, you don't want to be identified with anybody but Jesus, then you know what happens? You want to be identified with other people that are identified only in Jesus. <laughs> That's how division gets taken care of. See, there's nothing much about us to boast, but there's so much about God that we can boast in. This is why we sing praises. Don't you, did, are you guys connecting this thought here, these thoughts, that when we sing praises to God, we're boasting about him? I mean, how weird would it be to boast another person? Our John is an awesome John. He <laughs> preaches and makes us all laugh. We're so glad that Clayton led us in worship today. God, we glory in Clayton. Amen. We glory in his verse, his voice, and his guitar playing, and talking too much. Just, to, just teasing Clayton, just teasing. No, we don't do that. Why? Because it's not about Clayton. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. We glory in Jesus. Now, Paul closes this section off in verse 31 with this. He says, so as it is written, and here he's quoting the prophet Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. He says, let, no, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Again, let me read to you the verses in context. In Jeremiah chapter 9, listen. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this that he understands and he knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. You want something to boast about? You want something to be excited about? You want something to be thankful for? Know God. Know God. It's not about servants' church. It's not about any church. It's about, the, it's about Jesus who purchased the church with his own blood. This is, the, this is the wisdom of weakness. That God would become weak like us to save us from our own weakness that we never even see. That's amazing. Let's pray this into us right now. Let's pray this into our lives right now. Amen? Father, we want to ask that you would do... A, a work in our hearts right now. Uh, Lord, that you would, you would bring saving faith to those that need it. Uh, Lord, that, that those that are still wrestling with this, Lord, that they would, the penny would drop and they would get it. They would understand that we glory in Christ. We, we trust Christ because of who he showed himself to be and what he's done for us. That, Lord, we can see in Jesus that what you've done in him, what you're doing through his spirit Lord, is really the answer that we're all longing for. Lord, we pray you'd forgive us when we're always looking for a new miracle. Or you'd forgive us, Lord, when we think that you should, you should think about things or do things that, that line up with what we think. We pray, Lord, instead you would help us to be humble and just receive what Christ has done. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us as Jesus followers 
Help us, Lord, to not get tribal, to not claim our team, but to glory in this beautiful work that you're doing, to glory in Jesus Christ, him crucified, him resurrected, and how you're resurrecting us by that same power. Help us to glory in our forgiveness, in the righteousness and the sanctification and the redemption that you give us in him. And Lord, may that lead us to be those that are pursuing that expression of unity in esteeming others and in valuing others above ourselves. God, do this by your spirit even right now, we pray. We thank you, Lord, that you love us. And we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.